There are species that would not exist if it weren't for the conservation efforts of zoos. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hi, greetings. How's it going? Welcome back to the podcast that I make as a form of enrichment for me and for you, the Rossafari Podcast. I am excited y'all are back for another fun episode. Today, we are going to do a deep dive on a topic that is incredibly important for all animals living in captivity, be it zoo animals or pets. Enrichment. See, now that weird joke at the beginning makes sense. It's still not, like funny per se, but hey, it makes sense. Gotta take what you can get for, uh, you know, the zero dollars you're paying for this podcast. (laughs) Enrichment is one of those topics that comes up in a lot of interviews that we've done on the show, but we usually only talk about it in the context of specific animals and the enrichment items they enjoy the most, or when discussing funny training stories or whatever. But today, Enrichment takes center stage as I bring you my interview with Robin Sullivan, who many of you in the zoo field may know as Robin Shawokas, as she got married recently and changed her name. Robin is an absolute expert in animal enrichment. She owns and runs The Leather Elves, a company that produces enrichment items with a focus on bird enrichment. But beyond that, Robin has traveled all around the country and the world as a consultant brought in by zoos to help them develop and grow their enrichment programs. And don't worry, I know I'm saying the word enrichment a whole lot in this intro, and you may not know exactly what I'm talking about right now, but Robin does a great job explaining it all in the interview. While we're on the subject of enrichment, you can enrich my life by making sure you're subscribed to the podcast and leaving a rating and a five-star review. Also, make sure you're following along at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook for some pictures and videos that will hopefully enrich your lives as well. I really love bringing unique guests and topics to y'all, and this episode does both. The best part is, though... Any pet owners can apply a lot of what Robin is talking about to their own animals. Zoe has really made this her mission with our pets. Lexi has a scratch board that she uses to not only keep her nails trim, but to be actively engaged in earning her dinner. Matilda the turtle has a big ramp to climb and areas with rocks and substrate to dig in. AJ, the western hognose snake, has an enclosure with all kinds of stuff for him to climb and explore, like vines and decorations. He also has a ton of substrate to tunnel through, and toilet paper and paper towel tubes to slither around in, which he seems to really love doing. His whole enclosure is themed around The Legend of Zelda, and it's pretty incredible watching him climb over and around it all. We also used to have hamsters living at home with us, and Zoe built them a two-story enclosure to climb in and do hamster things. And let me be clear here, I don't mean two stories for them. Our living room has a second floor loft above it, and she literally built interconnecting tubes up to a second habitat on our second floor and going back down, and also running the entire length of the downstairs wall. 
it was incredible to see, and the hamsters used every inch of it. It was also hilarious to watch her try to clean, but that's a different story entirely. Finally, before I left for my first tour after it came out, Zoe made sure I had a Nintendo Switch so I could stay enriched on the bus. See, like Robin, the girl is an expert in enrichment. But enough about my animals. One funny fact about Robin is that despite the fact that she consults with zoos and helps out with animal stuff all the time, she did not have a Ross Safari poop story for us. So at first I thought this episode was not going to have one, but then I thought, nah, that new theme song is too good to be wasted. So I reached out to our good friend, Danny Poirier Larson, who is also the person who introduced me to Robin, and uh, I asked her for a poop story. She was so cool, she sent us two. So after the main interview, you will still get your Rossafari poop story featuring Danny Poirier Larson. Okay, it's time to get to my conversation with Robin Sullivan, animal enrichment consultant and owner of the Leather Elves. Well, it's my son. So my son's 25. And when I was, you know, when we were still able to go places when he was little and stuff, he had experiences that I guarantee you the average child doesn't have. Um, but, you know, he when we'd go to a zoo and I wasn't working, he'd say, well, where's the golf cart, mama? Because that's how we got around when I was right. working. And he always came with me. He, you know, he did a paper. I remember he was in like second grade about racing a grevy zebra up and down a fence um, <laughs> in the back and holding. And he did. Menlik at Franklin Park Zoo, he used to race him up and down the fence. Menlik would spin like on a dime when he'd come like right to the fence. And Taylor just, he wrote a paper about it. And I remember the teacher being like, oh, isn't that sweet? You know, he's got such a good imagination. And I said, no, <laughs> this is what he does, you know. But um, no, it's in doing what I do, I get a cool perspective from different facilities. So it's nice. Yeah, that's been a nice thing with the podcast, too, because I'll hear, you know, keepers at 10 different places tell 10 different stories and hear what's the same and hear what's different. And it's it's really fascinating to me um, yeah. to hear all that, you know. Very so, cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for joining. And um, tell me who you are and uh, what you do. So I'm Robin Sullivan, but originally people knew me as Robin Shawokas in the zoo world. Um, just got married two years ago. And I own a company called The Leather Elves. And we started, it was my parents' company. They used to make dog leashes out of, um, le you know, vegetable tanned leather. And they were out selling them in pet stores. And people were like, oh, you can use this leather to, to make other toys for birds. And it kind of evolved. And then my mom passed away and I decided I would help my dad. And um, it turned into a passion. It turned into, it's now what I do full time. Um, and I just, I really love the enrichment piece. I love that the way it's, the way it's grown. So John, when I started, I was, I used to go to AZAC conferences and I would sell bird toys and people were, you know, oh, okay, bird toys, not so enthusiastic, but I would go and I started meeting people and I met a woman from California. She was um, from Folsom Zoo in California. Her name was Lee Houts. And Lee, I remember vividly sitting in a stairwell at a hotel um, at this AZAC conference. And Lee said to me, you need to make enrichment for other animals. 
And I said, but well, you know what they can buy. You can't, they just buy stuff. And she said, no, there's nobody out there at this point doing commercial enrichment. So we kind of brainstormed a little bit and we talked about what would it take. And so I started kind of evolving from there. And as I got into it, I realized there was, it was about behavior modification. It was about problem solving. And we, we kind of grew at, from that point, but that's where we started into the zoo field. Um, so that's kind of fun. So I know that's really cool. So the first question that I have to ask you about leather elves though, and I'm guessing you get it a lot, but why is it the leather elves? So when my parents first started, um, it was just the two of them making bird toys and they had a lot, there was a lot of leather in them, but they were working with a pet store and they used to be able to get an order and have it to the pet store the next day. And so it was like the story of the elves and the shoemaker. And somebody said, oh, well, you know, that's, that's like the elves and the shoemaker. You can get us the stuff right away. And thankfully I can't do that anymore um, because we, it takes a little bit longer for things to get from production to shipment. Um, but that's where the name comes from, the leather elves. And so it's been, and my, plus my dad um, kind of looks like Santa Claus, like a big old <laughs> elf. <laughs> and he's still, I mean, he's still with us and he's, um, he's 85 Nice. And he is still the the kind of guiding hand. He doesn't. He used to do a lot of the sales, and he would make contacts, and then I would follow up. But uh, he just, you know, he's still in the picture, and he's still making suggestions. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. And so, how does this? Uh, you know, like I like I said, this is this is a, a more of a zoo podcast than anything else. And so, how does this tie into zoos? What do you what do you do with zoos? So with the zoos, one of the things I like to do is I'll, I'll go out and do a consult. Um, I will go to a facility and see how, what they're doing well, how they're doing things, how we can improve um, on their program if they've got an up and running enrichment program or create a program. And it's, I think it's really just a different set of eyes. It's going someplace and looking at things for the first time that keepers, you know, they get into their routines and they've got, okay, I'm going to do enrichment Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, whatever that may be. And so I get to come in and bring with me the information that I've got from other facilities. Um, Oh, hey, this works with wolves at this facility or, oh, hey, this works with this species. And I've watched, you know, I've been doing it a long time. So I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but um, a long time. And I've watched enrichment in zoos really evolve. It's been, you know, when we first started out, it was, okay, so the primate, I used to joke that the primates were super spoiled. Um, they were the ones that got all the enrichment because USDA <laughs> said they had to. Um, and, you know, it was like, well, what about the iguana? What about the snakes? And going into a reptile house was a huge challenge for me years ago because the reptile guys were all like, yeah, we don't need that. Yeah, no, that, right, we're all right. set. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> meanwhile, comes, some of the turtles out there, especially, are some of the smartest animals in the zoo. Yeah, it's so true, and and it's it, but it's come so far since then. And I remember doing one consult um, at a zoo, and I got there, and the general curator who I was supposed to be staying with was sick, and so they're like, "Oh, you're going to stay with this guy," and I'm like, "Well, who's this guy?" Oh, he's the elephant manager. 
And I remember being like, oh no, not the elephant manager. And I, I, you know, I did my talk for their AZAC chapter. I, I'll go in and do a, just a um, educational presentation for the AZAC chapter. And so I went and did that. He showed up late and I was like, oh, this is not going to go well. And I had all kinds of preconceived notions. And so we did the talk. We went to dinner, all of us, and then went back to his place. We sat up until three o'clock in the morning talking in Richmond. Um, he was one of the most enlightened elephant keepers I had ever met. And since, I mean, that's going back many years again, but it was just so eye-opening for me. And I learned so much. And then I get to share that with other facilities. But yeah, it was, it's, it's come so far. It's gone through phases. It used to be, initially it was, we'll put anything in a cage in an enclosure. As long as we put signage up, we're all set. We can, you know, people will know. Then they went to the immersive phase where you had to feel like you were in Africa. You had to feel like you were in Asia, in the, you know, in the mountains. And that was a struggle for us because we had to create things that looked like they were natural, but not necessarily, you know, it, it was um, things so that the animals still wanted to interact. They were sturdy enough to last but they fit in the enclosure. Right. So we went through that phase. Um, and then we went to, okay, enrichment's a good thing. More people, as, as more people bought into enrichment in, in the field and out, it got to the point where, okay, we can put stuff in there because people will understand what it is. So it's really, it's come a long way. That's really awesome. And it's so cool to have the perspective of, seeing that grow and change. Um, you know, I think that's, that's really amazing. Uh, one thing I've had a couple opportunities to do this in a small way, but as I've talked to keepers that have mentioned problems and something, you know, that's already come up on the podcast, I've been able to say, oh yeah, I know this person did it this way or whatever. And, and that's only a couple months in, I can't imagine having, you know, the, uh, X number of years uh, of experience to share. (laughs) That's, oh, that's really cool. What a unique perspective. The cool part too, is it's, it's, I find it, I approach it from like a problem solving perspective. So I've gone to different facilities where, um, you know, they're having an issue with an animal shifting on or off. I remember being down at um, Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, right after Katrina. And I mean, the whole city had PTSD. It was just, you know, it was a big stressor. And the zookeepers who had stayed through the whole, um, you know, the floods and, and the disaster, and then they were, but they still wanted to enhance the quality of life for their animals. And so by having me come and we talked about things, but they had things, new challenges, animals weren't shifting the way they, they used to, they weren't, you know, the enrichment wasn't exactly the same. And so we had one animal that, that was out on exhibit that was, um, it was a, a primate and it wasn't shifting the way it should. And we took a look at holding and holding had taken some damage um, from the storm and the entryway was a little different. So, and they were highly enriched out on exhibit, but not in holding. So we had to make that delicate balance happen, but we solved some problems using enrichment strategies. Um, So that's, that's really, that to me is like the ultimate when you get to solve those kind of problems. 
That's really cool. That's that's fascinating. I, I think um, to the average zoo fan, at least, um, I'm sure keepers know this more, but to the average zoo fan, you think of enrichment as uh, just like a boredom buster, like giving a kid a um, a video game or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To be like, here, shut up. Mommy and daddy are talking. And <laughs> But in fact, uh, you can really use it to influence training and, and behavior and all of that. Um, that's very cool. Absolutely. The, um, you know, I remember we worked a lot with the silverback at Franklin Park Zoo in Boston. Um, There he, it was just, he wasn't, he was super young, wasn't really handling the troop the way he was expected to. And so he spent a lot of time in holding. Um, Not a bad thing because we were able to work with him and give him all kinds of enrichment and puzzles to solve. And I remember you could see that was one of those moments for me where I saw the impact and I saw that kind of light turn on for that animal. He was working a puzzle feeder that we created and I could see that you could see into his soul for lack of a better way to describe it. And it was at that point, that was kind of a turning point for me. And this is necessary for all animals. It's not just the, the high profile animals. It's all of them. That's really, really cool. Um, oh man, you have such great stories. Uh, so, so how did you become an expert in this, in this field? How, how are you the, uh, the, the enrichment lady now? I think it's because no one was doing it when I first started. Um, and it's just through years of experience and, and, I learn every single time I go to a zoo too. So I may be there to provide a consultation and to help with, with what they're doing. But at the same time, I'm getting that knowledge um, from the keepers. You know, it's, it's, oh, hey, I never tried it that way. And I remember back one of my first presentations ever was at a Bush Gardens theme park. And we, I was working with the education department and they said, hey, can the, the guys who do the wolf pack come over? Um, And I said, yeah, sure. Not a problem. And watching the exchange between those two groups, it was just there was a mindset in the education department, how you provided enrichment and how you did behavior modification and a mindset with the guys who were the wolf keepers. And they were making suggestions to one another, but they were definitely things that on their own, they probably wouldn't have come up with. And so that kind of perspective. And for me, I started out my first paper at an AZAC conference was with the Luby Foundation. I don't know if, if you're yes, aware. Bats. It's I so we went, I I didn't know that the bat on the Bacardi logo is because Luby had a collection of bats. I never I'm sorry, I was busy drinking, I guess, instead <laughs> of instead of noticing the logo. Um, but I worked with um their staff and we came up with a bunch of commercial bad enrichment. And we were the first people to do it. And it was, but that was my first, you know, real presentation at an AZAC conference. And then it kind of built from there. And it's really just the conglomeration of, of information that I've picked up over the years. My background is in behavior modification. It was very easy to get into, um, you know, like training and things like that, because it's the exact same science. Right, right. Um, so that, that was kind of an easy transition for me and I wasn't going to do this full time. This wasn't, you know, I, I was director of a rehab facility, 300 person rehab facility. So it's, it's a matter of, 
shifting perspectives using the same science and just looking at it with different eyes. Makes sense. That's really, that's fascinating. Um, so I, I know that you said that you've, you've presented, um, you know, is this a thing that you do a lot now? Not the presentations at zoos, but like at AZAC conferences, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Are you really getting into the scientific side of, of, of all of this? I have not been to an AZAC conference in many years. I was um, an advisor to their um, the Behavior Enrichment Committee, um, but I haven't been for years. I've been really a lot of concentration in the past, say, 15 years has been on um, birds, not just parrots, but all birds. I was on the board of directors of International Avian Trainers and Educators for 10 years. Um, that it's an incredible organization. And I, when I first started, again, I was going just as a vendor. And instead of going back to my room after the vendor hall closed, I started talking to, to bird keepers and I started talking to bird trainers and we really, you know, took things to a different level. And I started working with them. They created a position. They didn't have a they had an enrichment committee, but only, um, you know, members of the board of directors were uh, the chair people for those committees. So they passed, a, they took a vote and they passed a thing that even though I wasn't on the board, I could be the, the chairperson of the enrichment committee. And from there, I ran for the board and worked my way up to president. Um, and it was, for me, that was really fulfilling because here was someone that wasn't actively working with a collection, but was able to influence an organization um, in, on their, their executive committee um, because of the knowledge that I had amassed. So, yeah. That's really cool. I know AZAC especially, they're, I mean, it's an amazing uh, organization, but they are also very into in-house only. Um, mm -hmm. I actually had uh, somebody from AZAC, like the National Committee, reach out to tell me they really love the podcast. And I was like, cool. W would you mind posting about it? Like telling, and she was, uh, we can't, if you're not a member of AZAC, we will not even like do an Instagram post, which is fine. And I respect it because AZAC is incredible. Mm -hmm. But uh, wow, to to have gone from kind of outsider status a little bit to the, that's very cool. It was, it was, and it was an uphill battle. I mean, there were people that definitely felt that I didn't belong there. And, you know, I, the, some of the, in the bird industry or the avian community, some of the, the biggest names have been on that board of directors and I've shared that position with them. And I look at, you know, now they're doing, they're doing a uh, virtual conference this year and it's the best of the best who are presenting at that conference. And it's really exciting to see an organization um, able to impact the welfare of animals um, in the way that they have. So, I mean, and that's the other thing about enrichment, John, is that it's, it's all about animal welfare. You know, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, oh, I couldn't do what you do. I can't, I can't work with zoos. I don't think they're right. And at that point in time, I kind of talked to them about conservation and how there are species that would not exist um, if it weren't for that, the conservation efforts of zoos and the breeding programs in zoos. And the same in the avian community. A lot of people are not super pro breeder. And, you know, I work with rescues. I work with in the parrot community with rescues, with breeders, um, because there's that conservation piece to it that is so very important. And I think, you know, I've 
hopefully have swayed some people who were anti-zoo to really look at, okay, they're offering, you know, great care. They're offering really good enrichment. They're offering, you know, the best diet that they could possibly have. And, and I think some people have to have their eyes open to that fact. And it's so important. 100%. Um, I've, you know, the podcast has been around for, like I said, about seven months, but I've had the Instagram account where I do daily zoo photos, uh, for over three years now. And, um, Oh yeah, I've I've heard from some people who are not fans and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people online like to kind of just be jerks, but there are people who are willing to listen and discuss and I do the same thing you do. I I talk about um the the lifespans of animals in captivity and the diets and the the amazing keepers and uh I hadn't actually thought of adding an enrichment component to that conversation. But now that I've talked to you, I'm clearly going to have to do that. Um, because yeah, I think, you know, zoos are amazing and, and do amazing work. And obviously there are ones that aren't. And, uh, and that, that's really, really a problem still in our country. But, but to compare Tiger King to the San Diego zoo or whatever is ridiculous. So, and I, and I think people, you know, so many times people are, unable to get to some of the better zoos, you know, and, and there are good things happening everywhere, small, you know, small, large, it doesn't really matter. You can talk about, you know, the zoos that are attached to major theme parks. You can talk about the zoos that, that are destinations. Um, And then there's smaller zoos, you know, I've worked with um, Southwick Zoo in Massachusetts and they, I mean, they're a small facility, but they do great things. And, it's taking those pieces and showing people the positive. And yes, there are definitely things that happen that are unfortunate in facilities. But when you look at the bigger picture and the good that zoos are doing and the children that would never see these animal children, people that would never see these animals except in a zoo, um, you've really got to appreciate what they're offering and what they're doing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you're with enrichment, you're fixing in some cases, aberrant behavior, you're showing people natural behaviors, um, enrichment. So for me, that's, it's always been a goal is to create things that get the animals to do naturalistic things. Um, you know, maybe they're not in the acreage that they, they would normally be in, in the wild, but okay, maybe they can still do those behaviors that are so inherent to what they are. So, no, totally makes sense. And, um, you know, it occurs to me that we've been talking for 25 minutes now about enrichment, but we've never really backed it down and explained what enrichment is. I have listeners who don't get a lot of zoo time and don't work at zoos, and and we should probably make sure that everyone knows what enrichment is. So uh, can you just, like, explain that for, for those people? Sure. So enrichment as a whole is things activities and things for animals to interact with um, that enhance their quality of life. So I approach it from a sensory perspective. Um, If I go in to set up an enrichment program, I try to address all the different senses. So I try to create opportunities for animals that address visual, auditory, olfactory, uh, visual, auditory, olfactory, dietary, um, exercise, and social. 
So they're really uh, and tactile as well. So you're trying to elicit these natural behaviors by offering an activity or an opportunity for an activity. It doesn't always have to be the big fire. I call it the fireworks response that you get from enrichment. You don't always have to have the, woohoo, this is the best thing ever. But at the same time, you've got to have some response. And sometimes the response is a little stress um, provoking. And that's okay too. You know, we talk about stress builds coping skills. So you're enhancing their quality of life by allowing them to be a bird, to be, you know, a big cat, whatever, you know, you're enriching, you're trying to bring out those naturalistic behaviors. And with enrichment, it allows them to exhibit those behaviors in a setting where it might not be the most natural thing for them to do. Does that make sense? 100%. That's a great explanation. Um, how much research do you have to put in on each individual species? So it's a lot. And I, a lot of that I get from zookeepers. If I'm working with a zookeeper, I'll, I'll get that information. I mean, the internet has good and bad information. You've got to be careful if you're doing your, your research that way. Um, I really, for me, it's about observation. It's going and observing an animal in human care. And then figuring out, okay, what do we want to get that animal to do? What do we want to offer that animal the opportunity to do? And from there, we create things. And so it's kind of like putting together pieces of a puzzle. So you do the observation, you talk with the keepers that are interacting with that animal on a regular basis, and then you look at what would the animal be doing in the wild. And if you can put all those pieces together and create an enrichment opportunity, then you, it's a winning situation. Yeah, makes sense. Very, very cool. Um, so tell me about how you get uh, involved with each zoo. Like, do you, do they call you? Do you call them? Or are you just this known entity now? It's a little of both. It's, um, yeah, I am that old that I'm, I'm kind of a known <laughs> entity, but, uh, it's really, you know, doing, going to conferences, meeting people, um, meeting different representatives, and then they go back and say to their either curators or to their ASAC, you know, uh, their ASAC chapter, Hey, why don't we have her come and speak to us? Um, and I, what I provide is if I go and speak to an ASAC chapter, I will also do um, a walkthrough of the facility and I'll take pictures and make notes. And then when I come home, what I do is I then create a report for the facility that says, you know, this is where you're excelling. This looks great. Good job with this. Um, and then different suggestions to things they could try. And if, and in each area of a zoo, I'll meet with keepers you know, if somebody can't get to the presentation or they're not comfortable in the presentation asking questions, um, I do meet with keepers at each area and say, do you have any challenges that you're working on? Do you have any behaviors that you really would like to see go away? Enrichment's a great way to get rid of stereotypic behavior. So what do you it's, mean by that? A, um, things like uh, cats pacing. Or um, bears, a lot of times you see bears walking patterns. Um, and sometimes in from a behavior management standpoint, it's just breaking up that pattern. You know, it's, it's, I remember being at one facility and they had a camel 
that had pretty much worn a pathway around its its exhibit. You could see exactly where it went every single day and it would just walk that pattern. And so we broke that up by providing enrichment in the middle of it. And then it kind of veered off and was doing other things. So, you know, I addressed those kind of things. And so people can either reach out to us at the Leather Elves or, you know, if they run into me, if we ever get to go to real life conferences again, <laughs> when we do not if we do right, when right. we do got to stay positive um at that point you know they uh they can approach me and we can talk about it um happy and i'm happy to do you know i can't do problem solving if i'm not really at the facility but i can brainstorm with people sure sure makes sense how uh, how many zoos uh offhand have you you worked with john i couldn't even i couldn't even begin to tell you um i mean all over the United States, I've done um, some consulting in New Zealand and Australia. Um, that was that was one of the most amazing experiences, and then in Europe as well. And it's it's kind of interesting to see the different um, perspectives, ver- like in the U.S. versus Europe, um, the level of, of visitor interaction and things like that, that happen. And I remember being at a zoo in the Netherlands and they had a walkthrough Humboldt penguin exhibit. And I remember being like, okay, if this were in the U S and I, this is no slam on the U S but people would be petting them and trying to stick them in their coats, you know? And it was like, (laughs) nobody was doing that. Everybody was just kind of cruising through, checking them out and getting up close and personal. Um, You know, so different things like that. Or um, when we were in New Zealand, we were, we were at the Auckland zoo and then we met with people from the department of conservation about Kakapo conservation. Um, That was, one of those aha moments for me. Um, For those of you that aren't familiar, Kakapo are a flightless um, parrot. They are the size of like a chicken, um, a big green chicken. So they're flightless (laughs) big green chicken is the way to describe them. Um, And so we were talking to the the folks at the, the conservation department of conservation and they said we were talking about behavior modification and things like that. Cause they, their breeding um, is ridiculously inefficient, the birds themselves. And so um, which makes me quite sometimes question whether evolutionary evolution wise, maybe that's us helping them out is not the way to go, but um, they, so we were talking to them and they said they wanted to reward our behavior and they said, you know, would we be interested in seeing some cockapo chicks? Well, of course we would, right? That was like, yeah. And so, um, but it was going to be, it was like a 12 hour drive on the other side, driving on the other side. Um, and we had to be in uh, Australia by Friday. So it was like, okay, no, it's probably not going to work. So we were very dejected and we left the office and we looked up flights and it was going to be thousands of dollars. And so, we were walking down the street and there was a travel agency and opened the door. And I said, okay, look, I need to get to this place by this date. And then I need to be in Brisbane by Friday. And um, how much is it going to cost? And the girl starts typing away on her computer and she says, um, $600, $600. Okay. I can do that. <laughs> um, and then we finally, so we worked it out, 
the plane was delayed. I got to see the poet laureate of New Zealand walk through the airport with his entourage, um, got to go to the Museum of Wearable Art nice. while we were waiting for our flight. Um, and then finally got to Christchurch and then there was a mechanical on the plane and we got to the, the site um, and it was a, they pulled up in a van and it was kind of like, okay, this is just a van with no writing on it. Do we really, it was Barb Heidenreich and I, and it was like, do we really, you know, get into this kind of sketchy van and <laughs> it's nighttime. And so we did, cause you know, it was for Kakapo. <laughs> and then um, they took us to a, a facility and they had us put on TVEC suits and we went in and there were nine Kakapo chicks and an enclosed, they were just in this pen, this area that was penned off. And they were truly like, little green or big green chickens. And we, they had all the, you know, responses that you see from baby parrots. And um, it was just really neat to watch them forage around and, and they were being enriched in this area. And um, so it, now it was kind of, the, we were coming to the end of our visit and this gentleman who was working there said, um, do you want to see how much they weigh? And I thought, well, that's kind of anticlimactic, but okay. I thought, you know, he's going to put it on a scale. This is meh. And um, he scoops this bird up and puts it in my arms. And all I could think of was there are 129 of these in the world. Please don't let me drop this and break it. <laughs> so um, it, it was just one of those life-changing moments where I go, this is an animal that literally is an endangered species. It's in my arms. Um, how do I help with this? And so we started working, you know, really supporting the Kakapo Recovery Project. And they have, they've done wonderful things. They really have. And, you know, you fall upon those conservation projects. Um, that was one. The Another one that I really like is um, the Bird Endowment. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Lainey Rickman, who started that. And um, so it's blue-throated macaw conservation. And Lainey um, had a passion for blues music and the blue-throated macaw. So all of her original birds were named after um, blues, you know, famous blues musicians. And they have, Lainey has since passed away and she is a huge loss to the avian community. Um, but her legacy lives on. Um, she, her sister is working with, um, the bird endowment and they have a program. It's the Nino Adoptivo nest box program. You can purchase a nest box and they're working with the American bird conservancy. So a lot of cool conservation projects with little, um, niches that people don't always think about. That's really awesome. And, you know, uh, along with just the, all the conservation stuff out there. I think one thing that everyone should take away from your story that you just told is just go for it. Whatever it may be, if you have an opportunity um to do something, like jump at it, you know, and and you've got to keep your safety, you know, in mind and stuff, but but yeah, most of the things that have happened in my life that have been really cool have come from you know, I'm on tour as a musician and an opportunity presents and I rent a car and I don't really know how I'm going to get back after I drop the car off that night. And, um, you know, just I, I just I take the risk and I go or I show up at a place unexpectedly um, because the opportunity presented. And, and that's um, uh, 
you know, one of one of maybe the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me with animals is I got to hold a baby red panda. And I don't mean a like seven month old on exhibit red panda. I mean a baby red panda. And um it was literally just because I put myself out there. I, I was at a place for a thing. I, I'm not supposed to say where this happened, but um, I, I was at a place and I asked to meet, uh, uh, you know, their red panda keeper. And I started chatting with this person. And and at first it was just a normal chat, but she could tell I was super passionate. And she was like, do you want to see the baby? And I was like, yes. And so she's like, you absolutely have to stay away from it, but you can see it. And we talked for a couple minutes just in the presence of this little baby. And I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened in my entire life. And then she goes, listen to me. I want you to hold your fist up like this and do not move. You are a tree. And I was like, oh, <laughs> my goodness. And and I got to hold this little, little baby panda. And it was the literally the, the best experience I, I've ever had with an animal. And yeah, I already loved them. But now I'm a volunteer for Red Panda Network. And I'm sure a lot of that influenced it. Um it really does change stuff, but it's it's only because, you know, you put yourself out there, you ask the questions, you take advantage, you you don't let hurdles get in your way. You think, how can I fix this? I love that you just walked into a travel agency and were like, yo, make this happen. <laughs> well, it, it was it was one of those, like you say, it was one of those opportunities that you just have to take. And, you know, when when working with different species, it's that that moment, that connection that happens. And we're lucky enough, I think, you know, because you have that passion and because I work in the field, we get to have those moments. And I really, you know, I used to work um, with the Nature um, Conservancy. And one of the things we did was um, an event called Bowl the Planet. So around the globe, they would do um, a bowling event and it was for the adopt the rain, adopt an acre or adopt an acre of, um, or a coral reef. And the money went to them. And so we did it with kids and the kids were just, they wanted to know, could they go camping on the, in the rainforest that they just saved and that they bought with their bowling experience. And that's when you create stewardship, you know, and if through my enrichment opportunities, if I'm getting animals to show these naturalistic behaviors that make people understand how very cool they are, you know, I'm going to a zoo. If I see a, a big cat just laying around, oh, that's all they do. Meh. But if they're engaged with something, if they're, you know, stalking a prey item that may just be a PVC tube with some, some, you know, meat stuffed in it, right? it's going to make that connection. It's going to make me think, you know, that child that's never seen that before. Whoa, this is what they really do. That's what a lion does. You know, the giraffes do run around, you know, whatever that, that natural behavior you can get through an enrichment opportunity, you're, you're doing so much more than just providing. So you're increasing quality of life for the animals. You are, you know, putting a, a good face out there to the public that may be naysayers as far as the zoo is concerned, but you're also making connection with the, your audience for lack of a better term, who's visiting the zoo, who now gets, Oh, wow. That's really cool. I saw X. And once you make that connection, maybe down the road, that person's going to be the person that, that saves a species because they got, they saw that when they were six years old. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. I love that. I love the, uh, the inherent positivity that you have to have when you're doing, um, conservation stuff that it always mm -hmm. just brings me such joy. Um, 
Yeah, that's really cool. So I'm curious, how did birds become your jam? Um, since I know you work with all different species. So I started, so initially before working in the zoo field, I was working with um, companion parrots, people who have companion parrots, and then realized there was a need for this bigger uh, enrichment opportunity. So started working with different species and then it kind of, it went, you know, I went through a phase where it was all different species and then it kind of came back to birds because I was working with um, some birds of prey in rehab and I realized how incredibly majestic they are and how much it, from, for lack of a better term, they're spiritual. And I will never forget holding, there was a, a, um, a golden eagle that um, was in this facility and I was doing an outreach program with some kids and it was the first one I had ever done with this eagle. And I had the eagle on my glove and the eagle started to vocalize. And at first I was a little panicked, to be quite honest with you. But my mentor in that field, who's a woman who had a facility called um, uh, Windover Wings in Connecticut, she's no longer there. But um, she leaned over to me and she said, he's singing to you. And I just, okay. So that kind of got me back to where I was supposed to be. But I realized standing in front of this group of high schoolers that I had tears rolling down my face. And it was because I had that opportunity to share that with them, you know, and they were getting a piece of that. And the same facility used to do um, outreach to a organization that worked with children with terminal cancer um, and other terminal illnesses. And they used to go and do this outreach program with them. And we were at one and there was a bird that had um, a lot of medical issues and had been through all kinds of testing at Tufts University in Boston um, at the medical, the veterinary school and had just run the gamut, but was still had a good quality of life, was living in this, this facility. And I remember this little girl coming up and she said, um, if Sky can do it, so can I. And Man. I kind of, I was like, and I looked and, um, Sky had, had a wing injury, a serious wing injury. And the little girl was an amputee. Oh, man. And so she was able to make that connection. And, you know, if Sky can get through all this, so can I. And that was, it's those kind of moments where you see people connect their soul to these animals and how important it is and how it touches them. So that's long story short, John, the, the birds for me um, are just kind of where I've, I've landed. Um, I really enjoy, you know, watching them, them be birds, you know, and, and in walk through aviaries, when people get to walk through a facility and, and be close to them, not touch them, but be close to them. Um, that's the kind of, of experience I want people to have. And my talents, as far as enrichment are concerned, um, is being able to bring them close to those people. So that's, that's how. 
That's incredible. And I can, I can vouch, you know, when I started this podcast, um, I knew I was going to be talking about animals that I didn't always care about as much because it turns out you cannot release a hundred episodes about red pandas. People will just not listen. Uh, um, and birds were one of the things that I was like, I could go to a zoo and skip right past an aviary. Like they're pretty, they're cool. They're nice. Um, I respect them. The big ones are really nifty. And that was my whole thought on birds. And, uh, I've, I've started to meet birds through doing this. And I I was recently at Elmwood Park Zoo uh, with my son. And um, I have done some interviews there and I've met some of their bird collection. And we were playing on the playground at Elmwood Park um, when I saw that Snowy, their snowy owl, uh, with an unfortunate name, um, was out, you know, like one of the was was out. Um, snowy lives behind the scenes, but they'll, they'll pull it out as an ambassador animal. And I grabbed Miles and ran because I was so excited to see Snowy again because I got to hang out with Snowy once briefly, you know, through through the cage and stuff, but I love Snowy. And then literally the next time I was at the zoo, Banshee, their barn owl, who who was an ambassador that lives behind the scenes, was was out. And I, again, I got excited. My arms started flapping. I was like losing it because I love Banshee and I, I got to hang out with Banshee and Banshee uh, was still learning how to land on a glove properly and accidentally landed on my arm instead. And that moment is one of my favorite moments ever. And um, I love birds so much now. And I love those birds to the point where, like I said, I will, I will run after them. I will, which is not, you know, need, need to stop doing that. Can't scare the bird. But, um, <laughs> but, but it is amazing how meeting some of those animals and getting up close and getting to see what they really do has completely changed my take on it you know mm-hmm. and i have my wall of animal art behind me and up at the top is a, a painting from russell crowe from you know danny at southwick's yeah. and uh yeah i just i really love birds now and it's 100 percent because of what you're talking about and getting to see and experience them and you know i think it again it's that connection and you know birds they, they keep coming in and out of my professional life um the very first zoo toy that or enrichment device that we ever made was for the condor at Philadelphia zoo, because he was pulling up his water pipe in the, he had a a pond in his enclosure and he would pull the water pipe up and the keepers were going crazy and the maintenance staff was not happy. And so all we did was we created a PVC pipe with a like a rattle and he could carry that around and that was his thing instead of having to pull up the pipe in the in the pond and you know so that was the initial like let's get into zoo stuff you know and then I started talking going to Azak and talking to Lee and it kind of went from there but you have those moments those like oh I'm interacting with this animal and it's really cool and I was I used to teach um, a raptor handling course um, with Sid Price from Avian Ambassadors in New Mexico. And he still does the course. And we would do a couple days, people would come in, we'd talk about behavior modification, we'd talk about enrichment, and then people would get to work with um, two birds that he had. And it, it, even zookeeper, it, I can tell you, zookeepers like do the worst things. Like they do stuff that they would never let guests do because it's like, Oh, well, I'm a zookeeper. And, and, and it's, it's that they want to touch things. They want to be with things. They want to do things. And it's just, it's that connection that we have with the animals. And that just makes, it, it makes everything worthwhile. 
Absolutely. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, I've, I've appreciated talking all about the zoo stuff, but I know that Leather Elves also does a lot for, um, you know, just owners of, of parrots and other things. So so tell me a little bit more about uh, what you offer up just, uh, you know, on the website and, and for, for people who have birds. So on our website, we do, um, a, we have a lot of different toys. We do, because we try to, so life in captivity for parrots um, or in human care really um, needs to be stimulating because people run into all kinds of problems. They run into plucking, they run into, you know, um, aggressive behavior, biting, things like that, screaming. And then the birds end up getting rehomed because they haven't been able to handle those things. So when we create, we create toys, we do a whole line, um, everything from very small, like birds, like budgies up to macaws. And, um, the toys have a purpose. They're all made um, by hand. They're made to order. We don't have a big giant warehouse um, and they all have a purpose. So when I create a toy, a new toy, it's with a a certain behavior in mind to elicit a behavior. And we also do um, behavior consulting. I do consulting online through Zoom um, now and, you know, working with people trying to stop, you know, the plucking behavior or the screaming behavior or the aggressive behavior. And it, again, it's that whole theory of a different set of eyes. You know, I work with people and they'll videotape their training sessions or they'll videotape what's going on in their home. And then we talk about it and then I'll observe their training sessions and make suggestions and, and see how we can improve things for that bird and for the owner. Um, we also do we're doing a live stream every Friday night on our Facebook page. Um, it's myself and Jack Pine. Um, Jack has a Facebook group called High Redbird, and Jack and I do Friday night flock talk. Um, <laughs> and we uh, have we do all different kinds of topics from like. And this week, Danny from Southwicks is going to be on with us, um, and we're going to talk about implementing an enrichment program. And we really, we've addressed all different kinds of topics from how to handle problem behaviors to how to do basic training. I mean, it's really for a lot of owners, they, they become overwhelmed and they don't know how to get started. And they think it's this big magical thing that zookeepers and trainers are able to do. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's just a matter of breaking it down into small steps and, and going that way. So yeah, we do the live stream. I do webinars with, um, bird clubs, things like that, um, do live presentations when we can. And uh, just kind of try to, I feel like the avian community on the parrot owner, like the companion parrot side, um, really needs to be united because legislatively there are people who want to take our animals away from us. Um, so it's it's that balance of how to create the best possible opportunity for any animals in human care. Awesome. And what is a boredom buster box? So a boredom buster box is, was created um, when COVID hit and people were stuck at home with nothing to do. Um, We tried to come up with something that people could interact and build the relationship with their birds um, and have something just to keep them busy at home. And so what it is, is a a collection, a big box of, parts and um, leather and natural uh, parts for toys. And it's so people can put, um, put their 
their own creativity and what their birds really like into the toys that they're giving their birds. So you created Legos for bird enrichment. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And the other thing that I want people who, for companion parrot owners and for zookeepers, um, creating enrichment and creating toys is not brain surgery. It's, it's really just about kind of looking from the animal's perspective and what do you want to, what's the goal for all of this? That's one of the big things that I want to stress for people when you're creating enrichment, you really want it to be goal-based. So it's not just, oh, damn, it's my shift and I'm supposed to put enrichment in. Or, you know, I heard on that parrot thing that that people, I'm supposed to give my bird toys. All of that is true, but you've got to have, why are you doing it? What behavior are you trying to elicit? So... Yeah. Makes sense. And then the last thing I was going to ask you about here is, um, you know, for me to become a rock star, I had to study the drums my whole life and get some lucky breaks. But you have a way to be a rock star on your website. Uh, go ahead and tell us about that. I do. It's called the Rock Be a Rockstar promotion. And what we've done is we are working with rescues. And if people want to support a rescue, but they're not feeling particularly creative and they don't want to make the toys themselves, they can purchase a Rockstar box, which is a, a set of toys. And they come in different levels. They can be, there's vinyl, platinum, gold, and Grammy. Maybe not in that order. Um, but vinyl, they, gold, platinum, and Grammy. That's it. There we go. And they can sponsor a box and then we make the toys and send them to the rescue of their choice. So that's really cool. I love that you're letting people get in on, on that side of it. You always hear about, you know, wild conservation stuff, but that's really cool that you could just send, send that to a rescue or whatever. Very cool. Yeah. There are a lot of birds in need out there. And, um, with the pandemic, there's been a lot of people that haven't been able to take care of their birds or, or maintain their birds at home. So they've had to go to rescues and sanctuaries and things like that. So we figured we'd just try to help out there if we could. Very cool. I love that so much. Is there uh, anything else you wanted to put out there on the podcast? I think just, you know, if people are looking to find out more about, um, parrot ownership, um, if they're, they're, you know, looking to get a parrot or they are, um, they have one and they want to enhance the quality of life for them. The live streams on Friday night. Um, if anybody's looking, you know, at a zoo for, for ways to get the keepers more involved in enrichment, I'm more than happy to work with them on that. Um, and just kind of enrichment is something, I think the pandemic has really given us a great perspective on enrichment. So, you know, people talk about, well, why is enrichment important? Why do I want to do this? Um, I, sh- you know, I'm feeding them. I'm, you know, making sure their their cage or their enclosure is clean. Why do I have to bother with enrichment? And I think the pandemic has let us feel what it's like. So, you know, we're in a space that we aren't leaving as often as we might like to. We are, you know, stuck with the resources that we have in our homes, um, except when we occasionally get to go to the store. And it's getting better, but um, I think that's what enrichment's all about. That feeling that you get when you want just a little bit more and you want to be able to do a little bit more, but somebody's got to get it for you or somebody's got to give it to you. And you feel like you could be doing more, but now you're stuck in your house. So by providing enrichment for animals, we're allowing them the opportunity to do those natural things. And we're just giving them the resources that they may not be able to get for themselves. 
Love it. Very cool. And um, I just wanted to, to end this by saying not only thanks from me, but I have to tell you, that um Danny uh Poirier Larson from from Southwick Zoo um could not stop raving about you. She she is so inspired by you. You have had such an impact on her life and um and she she was so adamant that I needed to speak to you and have you on the podcast. And I, I just wanted you to know that that, you know, that's just one of many people I'm sure you've reached, but uh you you definitely are having an impact on on people and birds out there. Well, thank you very much. And, and I have to say right back to Danny that Danny is one of the most wonderfully positive and, and enthusiastic people in the zoo field that I have ever met. So, but thank you. I really appreciate your time, John. It's been, it's been fun. I love, you know, I'm not getting to do as much zoo work as I have in the past. Um, and I just, I love talking about, about all of it. So. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossipari poop story. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Robin didn't have any poop stories. So here is the aforementioned Danny Poirier Larson from Southwick's Zoo who uh, has two quick ones for us. Take it away, Danny. Hello, Rossafari fans. This is Danny Poirier Larson, and hopefully you're not sick of me yet because I have some poop stories poop story. to share with you guys, both involving our parakeets and our parakeet aviary. Uh, so some of you know that I manage uh, Southwick Zoo's parakeet aviary, and oftentimes in the winter when it's just our bird department staff that cares for them, uh, we spend quite a lot of time doing some deep cleans, uh, especially in the indoor portion of the aviary where the birds spend most of their days in the winter because it's cold outside. So my coworker and I decided to do a deep clean one day. This was about a year and a half ago, pre-COVID. We were doing a deep clean. We were scrubbing the walls. Um, and sometimes because some of the poops get kind of crusty, you have to use like a chisel and chisel off some of the poops uh, before you can scrub and wipe it all clean. So we were having a discussion and... Of course, this was pre-COVID, so we didn't have any masks on. And I was chiseling a poop at the same time that I was talking, and you might be able to tell where this is going. I chiseled a poop, and it went flying off the wall and landed directly in my mouth as I was talking. It was absolutely disgusting. I screamed and ran out of the indoor aviary and spit it out into the compost bin and then rinsed out my mouth. Uh, it was horrible. So I guess the one good thing about wearing masks all the time now is that doesn't happen. And I don't think I'll ever go back to not wearing a mask while we're deep cleaning inside the aviary. So that is story number one. Story number two, uh, also involving our parakeets, is um, just a couple weeks ago, I was finishing up cleaning and I went outside the cage to um, just put some 
some stuff inside our bins and I lifted it up and there's a big bin full of millet. So every time you open that bin, the parakeets come over to the side of the bars because they want some. And I said, no guys, sorry, not today. You can't get any millet. Um, and apparently they were pretty upset about that because one of them somehow pooped on me as I was standing outside of the enclosure. So really good aim. And when I say they pooped on me, it landed directly in the middle of my forehead. Uh, so that was cool. I learned a lesson not to say no to the parakeets when they want millet. Um, but no, they still didn't get millet. I just wiped it off my forehead and carried about my day. Um, so anyway, hope you guys enjoyed those and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Thank you, Danny. And no, nobody's getting sick of you. Everybody loves you. I hear about it all the time from my friends and my fans. I have to say, I really, really crack up every time somebody uses the word poops. There's just something about the pluralization of poop that makes me laugh every single time. So thanks for that, Danny. And of course, you guys can check out Danny on the Instagram at Danny Poirier and Southwick's Zoo at Southwick's Zoo and SouthwicksZoo.com. If you're interested in learning more about Robin and her company, The Leather Elves, you can visit theleatherelves.ecwid.com. And of course, check out at The Leather Elves on Facebook and on Instagram. Definitely keep an eye on their Facebook page, as Robin does those weekly live sessions she mentioned in the interview. I attended the one with Danny Poirier Larson, and it was wonderful. Shocker, I know. And of course, you can find the links and everything in the show notes. Okay, y'all, my last way of enriching your lives today is by letting you listen to the Stydirk. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.